Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric, and this is Speaking of Race. So today, in celebration of Black History Month, we wanted to spend some time on the podcast spotlighting African-American scientists, since this is, in fact, a podcast about race and science. We've interviewed two people about past and present experiences of African-Americans practicing science in America. Eric will tell us about the first person. So we're first going to hear from Dr. Walton Malcolm Burns. Uh, Dr. Burns is an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Howard University in the College of Medicine. Uh, mostly his work focuses on the structure and function of bacteria and archaea. But in 2004, while reading some papers in the area of evolutionary developmental biology, he came across the work of E. Everett Just. And since 2004, he's had an interest in understanding and promoting Just's work. Just was an embryologist in the first about third of the 20th century. Dr. Burns has written a number of papers and given many talks on JUST. In fact, in 2009, he helped to organize a special issue of the journal Molecular Reproduction and Development that focused specifically on JUST. So here is our interview with Dr. Burns. Okay, so Malcolm, can you tell us first, who was E. JUST? So uh, Ernest Everett JUST was an African-American biologist who was born in 1883 in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And he was a longtime faculty member at Howard University, which was the premier institution of higher education for African-Americans in the United States. He was educated in large part by his mother early, early in his life. He went to South Carolina State College in Orangeburg, South Carolina, went to Kimball Union Academy, which is a boarding school up in, uh, in New Hampshire, and then uh, attended Dartmouth College, graduating in 1907. And the same year he started at Howard. He began doing research in the summers at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory and obtained a PhD in 1916 from the University of Chicago. He had a, a reputation both nationally and internationally. So he was an internationally known biologist who was well-respected uh, around the world, especially in Germany, where his work was very much appreciated. Stephen Jay Gould wrote about just what was that in the 80s, I think, right? Is there, are there things that Gould left out of that story, though, that you think that your research has uncovered and would be worth knowing about? So, uh, yeah, that's a very nice uh, essay. It's called Just in the Middle, uh, written by Stephen Jay Gould, I think in the, in the late 1980s. And he had actually uh, reviewed biography of Ernest Everett Just titled Black Apollo of Science, written by Ken Manning. Uh, an MIT historian of science uh, that was published in, in 1983. So Gould had written a review of that book in the New York Review of Books, and then he followed up with that essay called Just in the Middle, in which he talked about the work of Just and how it's, he, he took the middle position between the mechanists and the vitalists, and that he had sort of um, what today would be called an organicist position, um, which is characterized by the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so I think that Gould did an excellent job in that essay, but he sort of laid out the general position of just without going into many of the details of his work. And so I think what I've tried to do is to show how particular contributions of just were important and still resonate today. What do you think are his key 
contributions that, that do resonate, that play a role in today's biology. He's known for his work on fertilization uh, in marine invertebrates uh, and early development as well. And he discovered and sort of unearthed what's known as the uh, fast lock to polyspermy, which is a mechanism uh, that the eggs have of preventing fertilization by more than one sperm. He also uh, is known for his work in looking at, at adhesiveness of the blastomeres of the early cleavage stage embryo and was the first to see that they, that, that adhesiveness is dependent on surface properties and is very exquisitely developmental stage specific. But I think his most important contribution will be uh, on something called independent irritability. He believed that the egg cell and every cell has a property known as independent irritability, which is its ability to respond in a physiologically relevant way to nonspecific triggers or stimuli. And one of my projects right now is to show how that concept of his has permeated or infiltrated biology today and just had a very profound impact on a scientist by the name of Johannes Holtfrieder, who was uh, an embryologist who studied amphibian morphogenesis at the University of Rochester. Originally, he was from Germany. And actually, he and Just had become close friends when Just went over to Germany at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute there in Berlin, Dahlhem. And so Just had a very profound impact on Holtfrieder. And so there's this connection between Holtfrieder and his ideas and Just. And just not too long ago, a few years ago, I, I was happened to be reading a book written by Mark Kirshner and John Gerhardt by the name of The Plausibility of Life. And what was astounding to me was that a concept of theirs called weak linkage very closely resembled not only Holtfrieder, but also Justin, his, his idea of independent irritability. So my work now was to try to trace backwards from uh, this concept of weak linkage in um, Gerhardt and Kirshner's theory of facilitated variation. And, and show the connection, the linkage to just. Kirshner and Gerhardt's theory is very, very broad. It, it goes all the way from, you know, uh, biochemistry to molecular biology to developmental biology to evolution. It's an extremely broad, broad um, theory. And so just then has contributed in a fundamental way to this very broad overarching theory. And to me, that's very exciting. You know, even though he was known for his work on fertilization and early embryonic development, I think it will be that particular concept of his, his independent irritability, that will end up being his, his biggest contribution and his broadest contribution. So, Malcolm, one of the things that's always bothered me about Just's story is you mentioned a second ago, um, Johannes Holtfrieder, and there's Hans Spemann. Uh, Holtfrieder was a student of Spemann all these embryologists that some of them won Nobel prizes, their work is very well known. Just work fits right into that whole school that was coming out of Germany in the 1930s. And yet his name seems almost completely forgotten by biologists, by historians of biology. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that to some extent uh, it's because the uh, sort of gene centric model or view of biology and of organisms has dominated. 
And his view was very um, holistic, organismal. Uh, his view sits, fits in with what might be called the organismal systems view, right, of organisms and of biology. His ideas were in direct conflict with those of, for example, Thomas Hunt Morgan, who uh, was an early geneticist. The gene-centric view has dominated biology today. So I think, to some extent, that's the reason. Um, I think that today we're rediscovering a lot of these very important biologists, these organicists, if you will, uh, of earlier decades. I think there's a renewed appreciation of of them, and hopefully of just, and his work, because it fits so well in with that. During his lifetime, uh, he was accused of being too theoretical, too philosophical, too Eurocentric in his thinking. And so his American counterparts tended to sideline him uh, and treat him as an outsider and not cite his, his papers. Of course, the fact that he was African-American was a big factor. His accomplishments really shook people's worldview, Right. People had an idea, and you know, our country was built on this inequality between people of different races. And so he challenged that whole edifice, that whole worldview. And surely that was a, a very important contributing factor, reason why he has not been, uh, been recognized. Now, I hope that that's changing. How did he challenge that whole edifice or worldview? Well, because there was a belief that African-Americans simply can't achieve uh, at the level of whites. Uh, And there's a fascinating story in um, Ken Manning's biography, Black Apollo, in which he talks about a prominent physiologist by the name of Ralph Lilly, who was asked to give an opinion on just uh, by a guy named Edwin Embray, who was the president of the Rosenwald Foundation at the time. And Lilly really liked Just's work, and he wanted to give him a positive uh, recommendation, a positive assessment. And he did this basically in the way he was able to convince the panel to award just a grant, a research grant, which was the largest grant just had ever received in 1928, was to say that just was three quarters white. That worked. That worked for those, that panel. And he was awarded the grant because that would allow them to reconcile in their own minds how it is that an African-American could achieve at that level. So, you know, he had to he had to counter that all of his life. He's great for a Negro scientist. Right. But, you know, so um, and, and I think that to an extent, African-Americans today have to counter that same attitude. You know, he's great for an African-American scientist, right? That's, that's a battle that is still being fought, I think, by, by black scientists today. Do you think it's fair to say that Europeans were more attuned to just work than Americans were and sort of accepted him more than Americans did? Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think part of it was philosophical. His, his, his thinking, his work was much more in tune with their thinking. And the other thing about Just is that he spoke several languages uh, and, and read several languages. He read German, French. He, he spent time in Italy. When he was a student at Dartmouth, he studied the classics. So he knew Greek, Latin. Um, he was a very well-educated uh, individual. So he could, he could move in those circles. 
you know, he could he could go for Europe and really, really get into things and, and, be, and read papers in different languages, French and German. He even lectured in French at the Sorbonne. So unlike some other Americans, he could really take in that European influence and also the, the simply the philosophical uh, affinity. You know, the Germans in 1930 invited him to come and spend six months at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin Dahlem. They didn't invite someone else. They invited an African-American scientist. That was the first one they invited because they liked his work and they thought it was important and they thought it could, it could be extended to what they were studying. But Just was very outspoken in challenging reductionistic views. He challenged Thomas Hunt Morgan, the geneticist. He also challenged uh, Jacques Lerbe, who was a prominent physiologist in Woods Hole. And he picked up ideas uh, in Europe. And so I think all that together helped to make him who he was in terms of challenging view and in defending what he thought was right and true from a scientific perspective. I want to know about his experience at Howard. What was it like? Because it seemed like he had a lot of responsibility in the biology department at Howard. Is that what you understand too? Yes, he did have a lot of responsibilities. He established the Department of Zoology and became its first chair and established a master's program in zoology at Howard. He also taught uh, in the um, College of Medicine in the Department of Physiology there. And early when he first started Howard, he was extremely active. He uh, actually founded Omega Psi Phi, which is the uh, African-American fraternity. And, you know, anytime I give a talk on just there are omegas in the audience, and they're very enthusiastic about their about about Just, who was their uh, the, one of their founders. He also put on a play, theatrical play, at Howard when he first started there. So he was very active. I think I think though that it was um, it was a bit uh, stressful in many ways because Howard wanted him to focus on educating doctors, and his interest was to do scientific research. So I think that um, there was that disconnect between the Howard administration and, and just, but others too. I mean, many people told him you should, you know, focus on racial uplift for your people, for, you know, educating black doctors and, and being at Howard, whereas he, he just wanted to do his research. I mean, he, and he had amazing ideas. Uh, we can look back and say that his scientific ideas were just really a groundbreaking, right? So he should have been allowed to do that. That wasn't really fair, right? People wanted to put him in his place, but he refused. Do you have any sense of how he thought about or responded himself to the sort of racialized barriers that his work was facing in the United States. How did he think about that? How did he deal with it? So how did he deal with these barriers? With, with amazing uh, persistence. He kept trying over and over again to, to obtain funding for his research. He, he was absolutely persistent. And in fact, in a letter that, that uh, Frank Lilly, his mentor at Wood, in Woods Hole, wrote to uh, Ross Harrison, who was the president of the uh, National Research Council, Lilly described just as having qualities of genius. He said nothing whatsoever deters him from his goal. And, and that's just what's so amazing. He just, he refused to uh, give in, to give up, up until the, the day he died. Even on his deathbed, he was thinking about experiments to do with a certain marine analyte. 
you know, he just was incredibly dedicated to his scientific work. I think also there was sort of a gradual realization about how he was treated. And, and Kenneth Manning talks about that, writes about that in his book, his biography, about the, the, the sort of the dawning that occurred that, no, he was not treated well. He realized, no, I wasn't treated that well at Woods Hole. You know, and he began to have some sort of bitterness about that and even began to sort of think ill of his mentor, Lily. But the amazing thing about um, Frank Lilly is the uh, beautiful um, obituary that he wrote for Justin in 1942 in Science Magazine. If you ever have a chance to read that, read that. I mean, he talks about how he was thwarted and the land of his birth, and how he found acceptance in Europe. What do you think in terms of overcoming barriers that African-American scientists face about the relevance of the challenges he faced and what we're seeing in, in science today? Well, I think that just is a role model for people to follow. And, and not just, not just African-Americans, but everyone, really, because he challenged giants of the field. He shook paradigms that were developing. And so anyone who is trying to challenge accepted dogma, has a role model in E.E. Just. I do think he did the right things in terms of his own career and development, you know, in the sense of he did undergraduate research at Dartmouth. There are certain things that everyone needs to do as a developing scientist. So I think he's a role model. And I think he's mainly a role model in how persistent, incredibly persistent he was in never giving up and making an indelible mark on modern biology that we are now appreciating more and more. And I think that as biology itself, under the auspices of evolutionary developmental biology, is moving more in a organismic direction. And I think that the just work now can be appreciated more uh, in the context of this move uh, toward a more um, ecological, holistic view of organisms and their place in the environment. I think he's going to be appreciated more, especially as people learn more about his work. We also interviewed evolutionary biologist Joseph Graves, who studies population genetics among Drosophila, or fruit flies. Dr. Graves is African-American by descent. He's the associate dean for research and a professor of biological sciences at the Joint School for Nanoscience and Nanoengineering, which is a program jointly administered by North Carolina A&T State University and UNC Greensboro. Dr. Graves is really a pioneer in the study of race and science, and in fact, he's one of the inspirations for the podcast, so we were really excited to get to talk to him. Based on your research about biological theories of race, can you describe for us the general position of African-American scholars in American scientific enterprises since the 19th century? If I were going to talk about the representation of African-Americans in science, and and I think what you're most interested in is in the biological sciences and um, in anthropology. In the 19th and 20th century, it's important first for folks to recognize the nature of American higher education at that time. So the opportunity for African Americans to enter PhD programs was severely restricted. Certainly in the American South, generally it was impossible. So the few African-Americans who earned degrees in biological sciences or anthropology at the time mainly got them from northern universities. And there were a few. The first person I can think of actually receives his PhD in the biological sciences in 1890 from Illinois Wesleyan. 
And his general, uh, his work was generally zo considered zoology. A little later on, we get people like Ernest Everett Just, and, and I understand that you've already talked to someone about his situation. There are a smattering of biologists here and there, um, certainly in the anthropologists Probably the most well-recognized names would have been Zora Neale Hurston, who was an anthropologist, as well as Montague Cop, who was a physical anthropologist who spent most of his career at Howard University. And a great deal of his work was debunking uh, racial claims about people of African descent um, that were common in that time period. Could you tell us a little more about what work you have done on this topic? That is how you came to know all that you know about it and what interested you in, in it in the first place? Um, being a person of African descent in the United States, um, I couldn't avoid it. There was simply no way around it. Um, when I went to graduate school, I went to, to universities with departments that had the scholars who claimed I shouldn't be there because of my in genetic inferiority. And so I came into direct contact with these people. During my master's program, I literally thought that nigger was my middle name because I was called it so often. I had doors slammed in my face when I was walking in the science buildings because people thought I shouldn't be there because, after all, there are no African-American scientists. And so for me, my experience as an African-American in the United States, as much as I wanted to simply focus on Drosophila genetics, made it absolutely impossible for me to operate and maintain any sort of sanity in this society without having to take on these problems. In fact, I was, you know, literally sitting in my office one day when a colleague, a sociologist colleague, um, Ben Bowser from Cal State Hayward, called me up and told me about this book, The Bell Curve. Mm. <laughs> now, you know, I was reading, you know, the journals, Evolution. I was reading American Naturalist. I wasn't reading that literature. That wasn't part of my professional world. But he calls me up and he tells me a little bit about the book. And he absolutely implores me to write a critique of the genetics and the statistical arguments in that book. And so I ordered the book, got it, started reading it. I was absolutely appalled because none of that stuff could have passed in our genetics. In other words, people who did experimental genetics wouldn't have entertained any of the arguments in that book for one second. But because this was, you know, sort of popular belief with regard to the genetics of intelligence, it was passing as being the new gospel. And so my career takes a turn into writing about human variation and its significance and its relation to social, social and racial relations in the United States because there really wasn't much of a choice. What do you think, broadly speaking, what African-American scientists are up against right now in the United States from your perspective and what might need to change in order for that to be made less of a barrier? So the problem that African-American scientists face in science are the same problems that African-Americans face in any other aspect of this society. Institutional racism is at the very core of American social life. And so people who go into science careers are not immune from what they learn in the general society. And in fact, those individuals 
uh, bring those prejudices with them into their academic careers. And so when they see people, they start out with a implicit bias about what those people's abilities are. And, and, and I face that all throughout my career. I can tell you a story of being at a very prestigious international meeting with geneticists from all over the world. And uh, I would get up and say something. And you could see in the audience people looking away, checking the time, rolling their eyes, and, and not paying attention to me at all. And then my colleague, Michael Rose, who realized that they were doing that, would get up and say the exact same thing that I just said. And the audience would break out in applause for the brilliance of the comment. And then he would sit down and look at me and say, well, you know, this is what we deal with. And, and, and if that were the only time that happened to me, I would say, oh, well, that was some sort of aberration. But, you know, even to this day, you know, now some 30 years later, uh, I can write a grant and submit it to the NSF. And, and so since I have colleagues that I work very closely with, we all read each other's grants before we submit them. And so since these people are, are tops in the field of evolutionary genetics, if I get critique from them, I'm pretty confident that it's, it's a good grant. So this, again, goes back to a couple of years ago. Michael and I submit grants to the same panel as part one and part two of a research project. Michael's grant gets top scores across the board. And this is, by the way, a grant I read and critiqued. And I agree, top scores across the board. But Michael read my grant, and he thought it was top scores across the board, too. But my grant comes back with comments like, this is the worst grant I've ever seen in my life. And the difference was that my grant is submitted from North Carolina NT State University, which is at HBCU. So people, once they see that name, they assume that the work is inferior. And, and this goes on and on and on. And, and in fact, there have been studies showing implicit bias in the grading of term papers, in the grading of research grants um, at NIH. So this is what we live with. Okay? We live in a fundamentally racist society, and scientists are not immune from racist views, no matter how much they'd like to claim to be. But that makes me think, so the three of us teach classes specifically on science and race. Are there ways that we can incorporate things into classes that are you know, more introductory level classes that would, in one way or another, begin to combat the problems of institutional racism within classes in the actual content of the material that we teach? For instance, is there a way that we could teach population genetics in a different way that would make it so that students were beginning to break down those sort of solid race concepts that they may be bringing in with them to the classroom? Okay. How could we, you know, improve the curriculum so that students learn how to think more critically yeah. about race issues, uh, socially defined or biological race issues? So um, I've been thinking about this question for a very long time. And the first thing you have to ask yourself is in, in population or, or biology majors and anthropology majors are a very small proportion of the majors that come out of any university. Um, and even within biology majors, most biology majors across the country do not require a course in evolution. And those that teach genetics 
most of the genetics courses are taught by molecular geneticists. And so population genetics and evolutionary genetics is usually at the end of the textbook and rarely, if ever, are they covered. So even biology majors aren't getting a thorough presentation of population or evolutionary genetics. So, and that's a very small number of students to begin with. So this then leads us to this question of, well, how are the majority of students ever going to come in contact with this? So, so I've argued that because race is such a central aspect of American life, is that courses that deal with the meaning of human biological diversity or that material should be integrated into the general education core curriculum. So wherever it's taught, whether it's taught as a series of core courses or whether it's taught as a series of disciplinary courses, there should be a, a determined effort to teach modules that deal with human biological diversity and its significance mm -hmm. so that all the students who come out of any university will have encountered that curriculum. Because the way it's set up now, very few students ever encounter these ideas. And so they go out into the world, into their professions, thinking the same thing is about biological diversity before they came in the university as when they go out. And that's a true failure of university education. The Pew Research Center survey of workplace gender and race discrimination came out in January. It's a survey that was done last summer, highlighted the fact that it's even worse in STEM jobs than it is just in the workplace in general across the country. They found that 62% of African Americans in STEM jobs reported being discriminated against. I mean, it's not like they're telling me something I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> because these, these data are anybody in the field who is a person of color knows this. Okay, so, so yeah, the, this, our survey is reflecting my life experience, even, you know, with the amount of accomplishment I have, and, and I'm quite an accomplished scientist, if you still compare my salary to a scientist with the same accomplishments, they make about 20 to 25% more than me. So, again, institutional racism is within the entire fabric of every enterprise in American society. Science is not immune. I just have to say thank you once again for your early work that inspired me in my teaching. So I really appreciate that, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I think we could honestly say the Emperor's New Clothes completely changed my life. I was working in a corporate job. I was doing web design, and I read that book, and, yeah. and it made me think, like, I must study this stuff. So I appreciate it personally. That means a lot. That really means a lot coming from you guys. I am uh, appreciably humbled. <laughs> By what you guys just said. Well, you are the pioneer. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that we, we owe what we do to you. Well, I, I appreciate that, guys. I really do. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Um, All right. Well, thank you, guys. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week when we record an episode about ancient theories of race starting in ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm.